Welcome to Atwood Unleashed 71. First guest of the evening, Billy Hayes couldn't make it. So we're now bringing in one of our most requested guests ever. Resplendent, as usual, in orange. Matthew Steeples. Steeples is... You're wearing, Matthew? I'm wearing the orange jumper, especially for you. I've incurred all the locals asking me why I was wearing an orange jumper on a hot day like this. But um, especially for your audience, here I am. I'm looking at the thermometer on my fan right now, and it is 29 degrees. It's getting this hot. Uh, this is the last of it, I think, before it's going to cool down because it was up to 40 degrees recently. So Matthew in his orange jumper is doing absolutely great because you must be a bit sweaty there. So if you're not oh, well, familiar... We've got a bit of a sea breeze here, so that does help. If you're not familiar with Matthew, then tell them a bit about the Steeples Times. Well, I'm the publisher of a an online daily title called the Steeple Times that we set up in 2012. We write about many different things, but true crime is one of them. Um, we do things like horse racing as well, um, you know, um, oligarchs, um, society, um, all sorts of different things, um, food and drink. But um, our most popular topics are um, somebody we can't talk about and um, a lady called Meghan Markle, formerly known as Meghan Markle. Um, I think that's if we write about her, we get more traffic than anything else. <laughs> what subjects with Meghan Markle have become of the most interest to your subscribers? Um, well, our most popular ever article is um, one asking about her PR person, who I call her PR peddler. As I, you know, he, he claims to be a journalist, called a man called Omid Scooby, who used to work for Heat magazine and used to hang out with Jodie Marsh. I don't know if you remember her, but, you know, a glamour model. And... Um, He's now morphed into a mouthpiece for uh, the Duchess of Sussex. And he wrote a book called Finding Freedom. Um, we published an article saying, who really is Omid Scooby? And, um, you know, he he's somebody who's not quite who he seems. He's not quite the genuine journalist. His article today is simply attacking Tom Bauer for his book on Meghan Markle. Um, saying that Megan's new podcast is the best thing ever. He just does as he's told, really. And our our readers wanted to find out who he really was, to be honest. So um, if, you that... do have a... if anyone's got a question for Matthew, please put it in the chat. We've got one from Joanna. Can Matthew speak about Yankee Wally? Well, Yankee Wally is somebody who came to my attention through a journalist who you actually met at my house from the Daily Mail um, in January. Um, she was very interested in her. This lady set up a YouTube channel to talk about her thoughts on Meghan. And this was a Welsh lady who I didn't know what her real name was until later and her past. And um, she's become one of our biggest supporters. And um, she gives her opinions on a daily basis, rather like you were. She was cancelled on various channels because there are many people working with the Duchess of Sussex to get rid of anybody who dares criticise this lady or dares question her stories. Um, 
you know, there's not only her own family who she's trying to cancel, there are a lot of other people who upset her and they don't have any right to speak in her view. And Yankee Wally is a lady, an, an elder lady in Wales. Um, she ran her own business. She, she has a daughter. She became interested in this topic and she gave nightly discussions and read out the articles from newspapers. And she does so in a kind of witty Welsh way. And uh, she makes sort of jokes about her own life and she's become quite an endearing sort of figure in mine. And sadly, um, a lot of people have witnessed her being cancelled. So uh, we came to join many who supported her. Sounds like someone we need to get on the podcast, but perhaps in the Patreon section, because it's uh, unpalatable for the YouTube algorithm. I would definitely say that. That's the issue with her, is if she's ha she's been given radio shows, she's done many different things, but they don't seem to generally last. Um, her YouTube channel had a huge following, but it, it disappeared because there is a man called Christopher Boozy. I don't know if you've encountered him, but he runs a thing called Bot Sentinel, and he ran a campaign against her with the help of Omid Scooby, and the police were involved and all sorts of different matters. But, you know, this is how personal it gets, the situation of this story. It's not just about the war of the royal family. You know, Tom Bauer's book was the war of the Windsors, but there's a whole nother level of war on the, the, the people who are called the Sussex squaddies, who are the supporters of Meghan, and then the many, many hundreds of thousands who criticize her. And I, I, I receive messages from both sides of them, but obviously the ones that seem to like me are obviously the ones that aren't her fans. But um, I simply ask questions about, you know, her behavior. Um, she chose to marry into a royal into a royal family but she thought she could have the rights and privileges but she didn't want the responsibilities and i think that's the main issue that people who f have a problem with um the duchess of sussex um have with her and her husband because they want all the security detail they want everything else but they don't want to do any of the work now prince william and his wife they they do what they do and whether you like them or not they they do they do seem to be showing willing to participate, um, whereas these two they, they just moan and groan and complain and then they want a private life but then they want to get a hundred million which I don't believe in that number by the way, I think the numbers are greatly exaggerated but they want all this money from Spotify and Netflix but um, they shot it but but they want a private life so make up your mind time I say of both of them. Right, I'm going to read the next question that's on the screen, but I'm going to abbreviate the last word so we don't attract algorithmic problems. Uh, can Matthew speak about the FMs? So the FMs, the palm ticklers, we've got three podcasts imminent about the FMs that I think people are going to really enjoy. We have a woman coming on who um, her dad did some evil things. I'll leave that to your imagination. And he was connected i believe to a judge and cops in the west yorkshire fm police the same police that protected savile we've got a prison guard coming on who was run out of the prison and attacked by fms and ended up losing his job because of the fms and we have got holly the prison governor in part two she is going to disclose the role of the FMs in the prison service and the guards and the guards union 
and all that kind of stuff. So there's lots of FM content coming your way, viewers, in the next month or so. Now, from the cops and the guards we've interviewed, it does seem like those professions are particularly permeated by the FMs. Uh, do you have any perspective on the FMs? Um, well, I won't, I won't say anything that prejudices your channel, but um, there are groups of people in society who stick together and do things for one another. Now, the FMs, um, I don't know a huge amount about. I know people who have been involved in it. My own grandfather was briefly one of them, um, but he didn't like it, so he left. Um, but I would say, you know, look. Tell us look, more. Tell us more about that. What 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 did you learn from that? Um, well, my grandfather died many many years ago, but he he said that he didn't like the way that they behaved, and he didn't want to talk about it. That was all I ever got from him about that subject. But he was part of a community in in Manchester, and um, he, you know, in in the workplace in the nineteen fifties and sixties, people did join those things because. If you were, you know, a certain level of management, you were expected to join whatever you were told to join. And um, I think, you know, it was very much like going to the golf club. You know, you, you met certain people and if you did someone a favor, they did you a favor. I think that's partly what it's about. And, and the other thing that they do that they laud is the charity work. And I don't know why I'm on it, but I, I'm on a mailing list from from them. Um, which I get, you know, their press releases about things they do at their hall in central London, their very big place in Covent Garden, and it's all about their events. I've never been to any of them, um, but they're very keen to try and make themselves out to be part of the community now, and they they probably do do some good, but rather like Jimmy Savile with his um, Friday Lunch Club. You know, once you, you have people coming to your orbit and you have something you want to hide, if you've got them in your orbit, you will be able to manipulate them into doing what you want. And there must be a bit of that going on with them, I do believe. Ash but I can't say I have personal experience of them. I, I know people who are members of it. I have been invited to join such things, but I have always said I, it's not my thing. I, I'm you know, any club that would have me, I wouldn't want to join, I think is the, the way I feel about it. I I was a member of the Carlton Club, which was the premier conservative club of Great Britain for a while, and I didn't really feel aligned to it. So I left. That's the only club I've ever joined of that type, and it wasn't for me. I'm very much a loose cannon in my regard, and I like to do my own thing. So I'm not really the kind of person that would join such a thing, and I don't think you are either, Sean. Definitely not a person who would join, even though there are many conspiracy theories that I am already in it. Um, Ash has yep. asked if you could turn off whatever's beeping in your room. Is that a, is it your Whatever phone? Is beeping. No, it, it could be my. It could be my computer. I'll let's, uh, let's, my let's mute email that. program. I'll quit it. And a huge thank you to everyone who's sending moment. in questions. We're going to continue. We're going to go over to McCann and the McCanns shortly. But I need to probe Matthew a little bit more about what he's just said, I think, because this... I, what, what, what's the Carlton Club? The Carlton Club is um, a club in St. James's, um, a gentleman's club that was um, originally um, became part of the Conservative Party. Um, it was bombed by the IRA. Um, it's a place where 
people, every prime minister, every conservative leader was automatically made a member. Uh, Margaret Thatcher was the first female member of the club because they had to have her because she was a leader of the party. Um, and, you know, it's a place where you can go and you can get a treat, cheap drink, cheap food. You get cheap accommodation if you're staying there. It's a beautiful building, but um, it's now really not that closely linked to the Conservative Party since David Cameron because he didn't like the, its ethos. And it's become more of a conference centre now, but I haven't been a member of it for many, many years. What didn't he like about its ethos? Well, it, was, it wasn't the, 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 the actual Carlton Club's ethos. It was, it was more the way that the... The, the fact that it, it, it the I, I the I feel the Conservative Party left me. I, I didn't leave the Conservative Party. I didn't like okay. the Conservative Party as from from the moment that Ian Duncan Smith became leader, and I've not supported it ever since then. So I couldn't so be it, a member. Conser I couldn't be a member of the Carlton Club because you have to declare that you're a supporter of the Conservative Party. So are you saying that uh, London is strewn strewn across London? Are uh, all kinds of fraternities, houses, clubs, FMs, well, entities. Yes, there are, you know, there are different clubs for different organisations. So the Garrett Club, for example, where Boris Johnson held his famous meeting with the owner of the, the, the editor, then editor of the Telegraph, you know, which helped him along during some of his troubles. Um, that that's primarily judges and actors. Um, you know, to be a member of the Travellers Club, uh, which. Terry Waite, for example, that's where I met him. Um, you know, you, you've got to come from the, the world of travel and exploration and, um, you know, things like that. There are all sorts of, the, the RAC clubs about motoring. You know, there's lots of different types of clubs and you pay an annual membership fee and, um, you know, you meet people there and there, it is a good place to be introduced to people. And the great benefit is when you travel, you get reciprocal arrangements in other cities and you get to cheap accommodation and you get to stay in amazing buildings and you do meet some characters. Um, I have to say such places can be very useful, but equally they're very incestuous. Um, so, it's so it's to be, not to like be... Jimmy Savile's police club because he was using it, he was using that to protect himself as a, on a personal level. That was a very much different kind of club. So to be invited into one of these clubs then, do you have to be from a certain section of society? For example, um, I'm, from I'm from Witness. To be invited into one of these clubs, or even one of the clubs, for example, where Meghan Markle, you know, got in her, in her intro into London, Soho House, all of these clubs require that you are introduced. So you have to be brought in by someone who's ex an existing member and supported by other existing members. So to join the Carlton Club, you have to have a, um, a proposer and a seconder. So you have to know at least two people and then they have a book and you'll put in a book and people can sign in the book for you and support you or they can put a, a mark against you and try and stop you so yes you do have to have an inroad so people get blacklisted from these places as well they can be you and then, and then normally what happens in those places if the person you've proposed um, is put on a blacklist, you have to resign yourself because you've introduced somebody bad. So it's, it wow. is a hierarchy. It's a very curious system, but I think it's a lot more relaxed than it was. But then you've got all these modern clubs, like, for example, Soho House, which is full of media people. 
and you know musicians and artists and um you know they they have they have you know they have a hierarchy more based on money it's if you're very rich you get in um there are many different levels of these clubs so for example in chelsea in london there's the chelsea arts club to be a member of that you have to be a, a, an author or an, or a or a painter or a poet you know madonna tried to join there and thought she could buy her way in the membership were having none of it she wasn't welcomed um you know i have a friend who had a shop in chelsea it was called voyage and to get in the door you had to you had to be approved basically and um they didn't like naomi campbell so they banned her and i quite commend them for that and um you know it's there are different ways and people do things but um no these members clubs are very quirky and they're each so the, they're each very different and there are more kind of underground ones that are equally you know the same so it it, it doesn't it doesn't have to be a high level of society there's the highs and the lows and the, the weird and the wonderful and um you can find clubs for anything any number of things there are groups of scientists who meet and there are groups of you know whatever the you know the, the in, in america you've got the bilderberg club of all these wealthy people and you've got you know all these people who meet in the forest and have these conventions about the environment and you know then you've got for example this burning man thing that's coming up that to get into that you have to pay a fortune and you, you're not guaranteed to get in um look at the thing on netflix this firefly festival it was a game which was a complete con but all of these things are groups of people who come together for a reason and they generally come together for a reason because they think they can benefit somehow from it so a nexus has put soho house is a third tier novo rich royals and aristocrats Do well i would say it's more media. i would say it's more media than anything else it's it's the media classes rather than the it is very you could say nouveau yes there's there's plenty of people it's you know there are places like annabelle's in mayfair which used to be a, a nightclub and um now it's been bought by a man called richard caring who owns most of the restaurants to so the ivy group and le caprice and um which is closed down but daphne's and he he owns this this group of clubs and to get in you again you have to be proposed and seconded but there's you know a lot of russian money and chinese it's you get in based on how rich you are basically what about is it the gonzo or the groucho or oh, the groucho in, in club is more again to do with it was more to do with theater so you know people like um stephen burkoff the actor who i know very well and um but again that's more more into being a bit more like soho house because money talks now those places have sold out because they are generally owned by a private individual or a company so ultimately they have to be commercially viable as well and to be commercially viable you've got to have people coming who spend money so for example in mayfair there was a, another place called the arts club and that was in dover street and it was a club for artists and they could go there and they could have a, a sandwich they had a very weird danish restaurant i don't know why the restaurant was danish but you go there and have a sort of pickled herring or whatever you wanted and it was very very cheap a sandwich was about three or four pounds which in a members club in london and a glass of wine was probably three pounds or something and then it didn't do very well because all the old members were dying so they sold to some very rich indian people and of course the patron was prince philip and um he came to reopen it for these people who turned it into a very smart 
Shishi Club. And it was Prince Philip and Gwyneth Paltrow who came to reopen it. But Prince Philip was actually reopening a commercial venture. And I asked a lot of questions about this at the time because the royals are not meant to endorse commercial ventures. And, you know, it was very, very sad because all these old members were told you can come back, but they couldn't afford to pay £25 for their sandwich. And that was the end of them. And now it's a very trendy place where the likes of Meghan Markle, for example, go. Um, so well, she when, doesn't anymore now she's in America, but that's where the kind of place she went before she got married. So, you know, it's it's sad how those places have driven out the real characters. The Chelsea Arts Club still has that. It is a, so, a real mix of eccentrics. So you mentioned earlier, and we know the FMs are yeah. patriarchal. You mentioned some of that earlier gentlemen's clubs, but now you're saying about, you know, Meghan Markle and stuff. Are they mostly men's only institutions, these places? The the likes of Soho House, no, no. These these commercial ventures are very much aimed at younger people. There's no, none of that hierarchy. That, that hierarchy is gone. You know, the likes of the Carlton Club now has female members. There are There probably are a couple of clubs that don't have um, female members left. Um, but, you know, the affiliation of the Carlton Club is political. Um, and um, the Garrick Club, I think, has rules about which rooms men and women are allowed in. And there are clubs called, there's one called Whites, which is very aristocratic. And that's still got, her, you know, women are only allowed in certain rooms on certain days. Still. So, yes, wow. there is still discrimination in these places. So we had a question up earlier that's gone off the screen, but I think the lady wanted your general thoughts on the McCann case and how long all this money is going to keep getting spent on this case. Well, the McCann case is getting, again, more and more interesting because every day that goes by that they don't charge the German suspect, Christian Bruckner, um, is evidence that they haven't got anything on Christian Bruckner, in my view. And Mark Williams Thomas, did. he went to Portugal and he corresponded with Christian Brockner with a view to saying that he was the guilty party. But even he found that, you know, he, it didn't stack up. Um, they're keeping him going as a distraction from looking at the real issue, which is why, are they, why have they given £14 million to fund a search for somebody who, who simply won't be found? Because if she were going to be found, somebody would have traded in somebody by now, given all these rewards that were offered. And we're not talking £10,000 rewards like we, we get for some of the people we've talked about. So, for example, the reward with Stuart Lubbock, um, who, you know, we interviewed the lady who was his one-time wife. And, you know, that's a £40,000, £50,000 reward. And nothing's been done there. Now, the McCann case, we're talking rewards that are in the millions. Now, if you knew somebody who had taken that child, you would trade them in. It's a bit like the case that we've got at the moment in Liverpool with the, the poor child that was shot. You know, the underworld, somebody will trade that person in because it's so high profile. No one's going to allow that to, to be forgotten. Um, the McCann case is very, very strange. And there are too many people who associated associated themselves with it so you've got prime ministers ranging from tony blair gordon brown david cameron uh theresa may um you know they've all supported the mccann's 
Theresa May gave a party in Downing Street for the McCanns. If the McCanns were ever to be found guilty of anything, and I'm not saying they will be, um, is that th these people will end up looking very stupid. Uh, likes of Philip Green, the likes of Richard Branson, they all offered very big rewards to help them. Um, and, you know, all of these people have put a lot of effort into supporting them. And, you know, the McCanns did associate with some strange people in the days after their child went missing. For example, Clement Freud, and they went and had their vodka and risotto with him. And, you know, and he, he was alleged to be a paedophile. Um, many people say he was, and, you know, he he's dead now. So we can't prove that one way or the other, but the allegations are there. And, you know, the McCanns have had a misappropriation of resources, in my view, because there are other people who are missing. And, you know, in the last few days, a friend of mine went missing. And yesterday, the Daily Mail thankfully covered the story. And he went missing. He's a 45-year-old person called William Cookson. And he disappeared from, from the 2nd of August. And I'm thankful to say today... Um, we, my appeal and the Daily Mail's appeal has produced evidence that he was seen ten days ago, which is more, which is a more recent sighting, which gives us all hope. And you know, you can read about his story on my website and how he disappeared. He's a forty-five-year-old person who's had a number of issues in his life. He's had a he's a very talented portrait painter, but he he just vanished. And you know, people can vanish, but. In the case of the McCanns, that child has an unusual eye. There are so many people out there looking for it. Somebody would have traded in somebody if that child was still alive. Um, and the ridiculous stories that come out about, you know, we've seen it in a supermarket and this, that and the other. They, they're, never, they're never cited with a source. Nobody ever knows who gave this information. Yet the Metropolitan Police keep spending money on this. Why don't they help, for example, the family of Luke Durbin, whose son disappeared from Ipswich, and he was that's 10, 15 years ago, and his mother works for missing people. Why don't they help Kerry Needham, whose child disappeared in, in Greece? Um, you know, they, these are more ordinary people. Why don't they get help? Yeah, and I just want to say that our hearts go out to the family of the nine-year-old girl in Liverpool, because... Imagine, you know, you've just got a little daughter like that. One minute she's there, next minute she's dead. It's an absolute heinous, disgusting crime. Kev Warren, who was Michael Francis's bodyguard, he sent me a couple of clips yesterday when he was walking around Liverpool and his thoughts on the matter. And we have put a couple of our podcast guests out of Liverpool forward for the Pierce Morgan Uncensored show uh, going out this week. Hopefully, you know, their, their viewpoints will be expressed and... The bottom line is the war on drugs and drug laws, I believe, are a root cause of all of this. The and violence it's very of the drug sad. It's very the sad violence. that a family who were totally innocent were dragged into this because of a war between probably drug lords and that they were dragged into this and you know they came into their invaded their house and killed their child. Yeah, it's, it's a function, it's an iron law of economics that the most violent gang will control the drug market. 
So there's been an arms race amongst these gangs all over the world, as we've seen with the cartels, whereby people are now, the whole families now, are tortured and it's put online. You know, the mafia in the old days, you don't harm women, don't harm kids, it's all out the window. Now there's an arms race whereby whoever commits the most extreme violence will maximize their profits from the drug market. And what is the most traded drug in the world? Weed. And it is an absolute crime that the government continues to allow criminals to run, control, and fight over this black market that is generating hundreds of millions, oh, sorry, billions a year. The black market in drugs is estimated at a trillion a year right now. Billions a year in profits getting handed over to gangs who can arm themselves to the teeth and commit these heinous crimes. So the government needs to look at its own policies instead of just being a reactionary entity that wants to make headline news throw all these police on the streets, pretend to be tough on crime, pretend to be clamping down when they can damn well go back and address the root cause of what's causing this in the first place. Um, I quite agree with you. I think it's a disgrace. And it's only going to get worse. All right, on a lighter note then, Maid Marion Matthew has asked... What do you think about Anthony Joshua losing the boxing match the other night? <laughs> I can't say I'm, I can't say I'm an expert on boxing, but um, uh, it all sounds rather a mess, and uh, um, I don't, I don't, I don't think I can really answer any more than that. Yeah, and I, Tyson Fury's demanding what a, a massive fee now to fight Uzik and. I think he's, you know, he'll be the one who's going to sweep all these belts. Are you a Tyson Fury fan, Matthew? Sorry, Are you a Tyson Fury fan, Matthew? Um, I, I, I think that the man is uh, definitely a character, and um, <laughs> I uh, have to say, you know, I coming from near where he he uh, lives in Morecambe in Lancashire. I used to live near there. Um, you know, I think the community there is very much behind him, and uh, I think he's he's. You know, he's someone who's turned his life around and made something of himself. So, yes, I would root for him, yes. He is an absolute legend and a character, and we'd love to get him on the podcast at some point. So, the jolly man, I mean, this if you've just tuned in, it's Ask Matthew Anything, A-M-A, and the jolly man's oh, got so an interesting one here. Pagans, are we? Did ancient civilizations become cannibalistic and into human sacrifice, or did they follow the sun? Well, the people I witnessed on the beach here in Broadstairs on the summer solstice were very much sun worshippers. Um, there are supposedly a coven of Wiccans down here, and they gather in the woods and do whatever they do now. I, I don't think these people harm anything, and they, but I. I don't know much about their activities. You know, you do read about people using such things for purposes of bad, but um, I think they're mostly harmless. T. O'Shaughnessy would like to know, Matthew, what drew you to true crime in the first place? Where did it all start? Um, well, I think the first time I experienced true crime was when I was a child. And... Um, we were going to a wedding um, of my aunt's um, close friend and we were driving to Oxfordshire and um, we stayed somewhere and um, we, I was with my grandmother and my mother and we were in a, 
holiday cottage that we were renting and um, uh, it came on the television that the lady we were due to go to this marriage of had been shot with a crossbow and she was murdered and um, her murder has never been solved. Um, her late name was Diana Moores. You won't find much about her on the internet, but um, it was a very unusual killing in West London. She to be killed with a crossbow and it kind of scared me and made me think about things. And I was very young and it, that, that stuck in my mind. And then gradually more and more of these cases started to, I read about things. I used to love Miss Marple. Miss Marple was my Sunday evening viewing by the fireside. And I loved the theme tune and I loved the way that she solved simple crimes. <laughs> Princess Diana Boston breaks. Is that... Um, well, I think the big, the big problem with the death of Princess Diana is the fact that the bodyguard appeared to have been, you know, drinking or intoxicated. The car that Mohammed Fayed had supplied um, had been chopped up. It was, a, it was a car that had lots of problems. If she had taken royal bodyguards, things may have been rather different to the amateurish people who drove her in that tunnel. Now, the thing about the Fiat Panda, that's very bizarre. Yes, the man disappearing and he's dead. And there are many theories about it. But again, I, I can't answer that because I don't I don't know. I, I think there are many strange things. She believed that someone would kill her and, and a car accident was something she talked about. Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, as you know, so I, I, I don't know. Well, there's an endless fascination with secret societies on this channel. And we, yeah. Zaref, the alchemist, would like your thoughts on the Club of Rome, the Bilderbergs, and the RIIA. I think that the likes of Bilderberg are, are groups of very powerful people who come together and they do change the world. And whether they change it for the benefit of you or I is very questionable. And, you know, I've written in the past about a man who owns um, a thing you may have read called Breitbart. Um, which is a, a right-wing channel, um, and he funds things in Britain like the Taxpayers Alliance, which is nothing to do with supporting taxpayers. It's it's a lobby group for the likes of Nigel Farage's friends, and his name is Robert Mercer, and these people have more powerful than prime ministers and presidents, and when they come together, they get things done their way, and I, you know, a lot of people on your channel talk about the Rothschilds and Yes, the likes of Rothschild linked to a lot of these people. And we won't talk about, you know, the lady who I've written most about, but they all they all link together. Yes. You, what about Klaus Schwab? Klaus, this, Klaus, this Klaus Schwab guy, what are your thoughts on him? Um, another person with too many connections. So, you know, when you get to these connections, um, I will see if I can quickly find you. You know, I, I do things like that. Uh, it, it I put together. Your, is that the inside of your brain, right there, externalized? That's my mind map, and I I put together the connections between these people, and you know some connections are weak, and some are much stronger. But these people all come together when it suits them to benefit themselves and their connections, and that is it, a. Sometimes it can be for the good of the world. Sometimes it's most definitely not. What about when a Alex so the Jones family? 
Yes, the Bakeland family um, were a very interesting family, and I have written a, quite a bit about that. Um, if you're interested in that, you should watch a film with Julianne Moore and Eddie Redmayne. It's called Savage Grace. Um, so Anthony Bakeland was um, the son of a an American lady um, who was an actress who married the heir to the Bakelite plastic fortune. And they were very sociable people. They were very strange people. They had very warped morals. It was in the 1950s or 60s. Um, and they traveled extensively. They moved to London and they brought this child with them. They, they, the child was very strange. It used to pull the wings off but butterflies and it, it was obsessed with its dog. And when its dog died, it slept with its dog's collar forevermore. And, um, and the, boy, the boy was clearly gay but his mother didn't like him being gay. So the mother decided to sleep with her own son to try and make him straight, which was a very strange thing to do. And meanwhile, he was bringing home his school friends and they lived in Cadogan Square. Um, and um, the father took a liking to one of these children and um, eventually ended up living or marrying one of them. And that made the child even more angry. And da, 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 the whole series of events occurred. And ultimately, one night, um, the boy, who was called Anthony Bakeland, um, decided to murder his mother. And he tried to throw her under a, under a car previously. She'd been to see a psychiatrist who'd said, be warned, this child will kill you. And she said, no, it won't. And anyway, that the... the the child eventually killed the mother and then he, he didn't ring the police he rang for a chinese takeaway and eventually the police came and he he was locked up and because of all these well-meaning rich people he was allowed out and it, on the condition he went back to america and he was put on a plane with um, a minder to take him there and he told the minder i will kill my grandmother because he was going to live with her he stabbed her i think 47 times Somehow she miraculously survived. He was put in Rikers Island. And again, he thought he would get out because of all the well-meaning friends. And he was told, you won't be getting out. And then he killed himself. So it was a very tragic story of wealth. And there were people, the parents were friends with people like Pablo, uh, Pablo Picasso and, you know, all sorts of people, Warhol and it was a, it was a very high, but this child had a, had a warped upbringing and the story is very well told in this film, Savage, Savage Grace, which I urge people to watch. I need to watch that. What a fantastic question and an unexpectedly harrowing answer. Yes. Project yeah. Reject, Matthew. The, the World Economic Forum is financially backed by Lucis Trust, founded by Alice Bailey, originally called Lucifer Trust. Any veracity to that? Um, I don't know the specifics of that, but um, yes, these trusts all have very odd, odd backgrounds and odd people involved in them. And um, you know, I've been sent something by the lady who we talked with in the past, Kirby Summers, and we won't go into what she talked mostly about. But um, I'm looking into something with her of a similar nature, and you know, there are there are connections with the likes of Freemasonry and heaven and hell and all these kind of things. And 
yes, it's they do have odd, odd names. A lot of them. What are your thoughts on the murder of Jill Dandov? This is from Robert Marshall. Well, the, the murder of Jill Dando interests me in some ways because obviously my my mother and my aunt's friend, Diana Moores, was shot with a crossbow on her doorstep in West London at a similar, slightly earlier, but, um, you know, that sort of time. And it, it was a similar sort of aged woman of connections of the similar type. And the Jill Dando matter is more complicated than that you know she was the crime watch presenter and she talked about bosnia and they say it was a warlord perhaps and then there was her links to her knowledge of jimmy savile you know she had spoken out about jimmy savile um you know she she was connected to all sorts of people you know she had she had a friendship with um jeffrey archer um you know she she knew all sorts of she'd she had a, a hus husband, fiance, who who seemed like a successful man, and um, you know there were all sorts of people with motive. And I feel sorry for that poor man who was falsely imprisoned, because you know they clearly pinned it on him just to try and shut the whole matter down. Now, again, we don't know the truth of it, but uh, it's definitely more likely linked to her work on Crime Watch than it was to anything else. Is that a bit like they pinned it on Jeremy Bamber to shut the whole matter down? Well, again, I was um, on there the, uh, the the discussion with the with the people we talked with um, the other day, um, Philip and Yvonne, and you know, again, you you look at the police records and the way things were handled. Now, I don't know whether he was innocent or guilty, but I think there is a need for a reinvestigation of such a story because, you know, the police burned evidence. They took it home with them and they destroyed it. Why would you do that if you didn't have something to hide? So with this next question, and Ash has sent in a reminder for us not to mention the grand old Duke of York in your response to this one or to skirt around it somehow. Uh, yes. Maybe just say the Duke, the Duke perhaps. So any info on the girl found drowned in a pond at Sandringham? Um, I, I don't know what became of that story, but... Um, Yes, there was a person who who drowned there, and there was all, all was found dead there. But you know, people are found dead in many different places, and you know, it's it's a vast estate of thirty thousand or something acres. So it, it could be purely coincidental, or it could be something more sinister. But you know, I I I was looking up at the weekend because of my friend being missing. Um, I looked up the missing persons unit, and. I was even I was shocked, and I'm sure you've obviously seen such things yourself. But the number of people whose bodies are found in this country, and nobody knows who they are. Um, you know, some of the people listed on this site, it just said, looked like a vagrant, found with a set of keys, don't know who they are, might be about 50 years old. And that's how they're marked down. And, you know, isn't it sad that that's how somebody could be remembered? And people out there don't even look for them. And wow. you know, with the case of Luke Durbin, the boy who disappeared in Ipswich, they recently found remains in a river near there. Mm. And of course, immediately the people thought maybe it was him or maybe they thought it was this Cory McKeague who was the, the airman who went missing, uh, who they've recently had the big inquest into. And it wasn't, it was somebody else and nobody knows who it is. So 
with the case of the girl in the the pond, I don't know what became of that because I've never heard any more, which suggests they don't even know who it was. But I may be wrong. Maybe there is more on that that I haven't heard about. What are your thoughts about people printing out guns at home using 3D printers? Well, I think that's highly irresponsible. Um, I don't think that should be encouraged by anybody. I, I think we need to be very careful about guns. And, you know, you don't have to look at the situation in America. I have, I'm not an anti-gun person, but, but I think the way which people are encouraged to use guns should be monitored and be, you know, it should, we should be careful about it. You know, we, we have le less gun crime here that is because, because of the way the gun laws are compared to America. But, um, you know, I think it's again about who controls the gun. You know, if you get a bad person with a gun, you only look at what happened in Dunblane. And again, that, that, that links back to the Freemasonry stuff with, that man's connections and um you know if you allow a bad person to get hold of a gun then bad things are going to happen what's the worst criminal you've come across well we did a documentary well, I, on Sa we did a documentary on savile didn't we so that's one of the worst well but that that's not somebody i've actually met okay um are they saying the worst met. person i've ever met perhaps um, that is the um question yep um Gosh, I, I, I think the, the strangest I met was um, a waiter who I, who I knew in a restaurant in Chelsea. And he was a nice, innocent person, but I couldn't fathom why, why he was able to afford to live in an apartment around the corner from the restaurant. Um, and he had a girlfriend who seemed very attractive and much a little older than him, and she had a child. And... Um, one night he, he, he left the restaurant and I remember sitting and having a drink with the staff and I remember him leaving and he went home and he discovered her with somebody else and basically she had worked as a prostitute and um, that was how they afforded to live the way they did. And he, he didn't realise this, I think. He was a little naive and he killed her and tried to kill the child and he wrote to me from prison on remand and asked if I would support him and I couldn't fathom why, why I would want to support such a person after what he did to this woman and her child, because the child was very lucky to live. And yes, people have moments of intense passion, but that, that was awful what happened there. And I, I was horrified by it. Um, but I've, like... I've spoken with people who, you know, I've corresponded with other people in prison who, who have done very bad things. Um, and people who I believe to be innocent. And I, again, you know, the case of Mark Alexander, I think there's, there's somebody who, who has never admitted his guilt and is being tortured in prison as a result. And he's, it's totally wrong. And um, I think there are people who, there are cases of grave missing in, injustice out there. And you know about this more than anything else. For all these people that are very guilty and should be in there forever and ever, there are people who really have been put in the wrong place and it's absolutely terrible matthew you've been a gentleman as usual uh, during this ama we're gonna to have to do an ama part two ask matthew anything part two and well, the, the answers to fill in, but I'm, I'm sorry i'm not as exciting a guest as the other one but well everybody has been absolutely delighted with you stepping in and taking all these questions and a huge thank you to all the viewers as well I'll be back in 30 minutes with a dark journalist. And please support Matthew 
at the Steeples Times. Links will be in the description box. You're welcome to pester him on Twitter. Send him questions, stalk him. He tries to get give everybody a response. His Twitter handle's down there. And again, have a great rest of your day on the South Coast, Matthew. Okay, well, thank you very much. See you, Matthew. Okay, bye-bye. Cheerio. Mate, I think when he said, um, he's gone, Sean. I think when Matthew said, sorry, I wasn't as exciting as your other guests, you were supposed to say, yes, you are, Matthew. Well, Sean was supposed to say, anyway, we've been changing, chopping and changing, doing all sorts of things. And we now have a very exciting and interesting guest. It is Harvard Lawyer Lee. How are you doing, Harvard Lawyer Lee? Great, great. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for coming, especially at short notice and everything. Where are you calling us or talking to us from today? From Atlanta, Georgia. Lana, Georgia. I don't know very much about that. Is that where just Georgia where to kill a mockingbird? No, that's not where that is. Alabama, is Alabama for uh, yeah. George yeah. is a different thing. So why do they call you Harvard lawyer Lee? I presume Harvard lawyer. Yes, yes. So um, Harvard lawyer Lee is just the name of my YouTube channel. I went to Harvard. I'm a lawyer, and my name is Lee. Although my very favorite comment ever from a viewer is. Somebody said, you know, I figure you're probably a lawyer who went to Harvard. Your name is Lee. But I like to think that your first name is Harvard, your middle name is lawyer, and your last name is Lee. So I'm like, yep, that's it. That's the reason. Imagine that. Or it would be like your parents really setting you up. And, and you know, I once, I once, who did I know? I knew yeah. some parents who called their kid, I think, Aphrodite. And all the, all the kids had different Greek goddess names. And I thought you're really setting them up for disappointment, yeah. you know. A lot of pressure. Oh, living up to that kind of right. thing. So you've got a YouTube channel, of course, as you say, Harvard Lawyer Lee, and you talk about all the different kinds of legal matters of the day, uh, in, particularly in pop culture and things, and the, the big the big stories of the day. And I want to ask you a little bit about the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp stuff, because I thought that had just gone dead. And it's sort of still lingering on. What's Just for those who haven't kept up with it, you know, what's the latest going on there? So we're getting pretty close to the appeal documents coming in. Amber has named some brand new attorneys. She kicked out her old attorney, Elaine Bredehoff, which was pretty sensational news. She's hired wow. two brand new lawyers to handle the appeal. And now she's got, it'll probably, the due date, I think was September 4th. But now that they have new lawyers, I wouldn't be surprised to see them asking for more time. That's kind of common anyway, but if, you have new lawyers, good chance the appellate court would give it to you. So we may not really get briefing all that long. That can take a year or more anyway. So so she is appealing now after being found, am I right in saying, guilty of defamation for what she wrote or, or, or said in an interview about Johnny Depp. That's what that's the original thing that happened, right? Yeah, that's a pretty good description. Technically, you wouldn't call it guilty since it wasn't a criminal case, but right. liable, you'd say. She was found liable for defamation. He was also, and he's appealing too. Um, he was also found liable for defamation, just to a much lesser degree. You know, fifteen million versus two. Why does he? I just don't know why they they bother. Why do you think that it's that important? I mean, obviously he wanted to clear his name, and you you saying there that he was also found liable. I didn't even know that. I think most people don't even know that. He seems to have his name name pretty much cleared. Why does? What's in it for him to keep sort of you know pushing back? So for him, it's not so much that he wants to keep pushing back. It's not really that he wants to keep going. It's that if she's going to appeal, typically the decision the lawyers would make is, well, okay, we'll appeal hmm. the kind of small verdict against him 
also at the same time. It's that's just a kind of common decision, but it's not necessarily that he wants to keep going. In fact, I think he would love for it to stop. I think he would, because it turned out well for him. The, mm-hmm. the liability against him was for a particular statement that his lawyer made. And so I, oh. I think most people figured, well, you know, that wasn't all that bad against Johnny. So it really turned out well for him. And if he could stop, I bet he would. <laughs> How can you be found liable for defamation for something your lawyer said? Well, if, if the person is acting as your agent, and then you could be found liable for what they did. And so the ruling uh. was... He wouldn't come in and answer questions. You know, he claimed the attorney-client privilege for everything. So the judge ruled that Depp would be responsible for what he said, and therefore there was a ruling or a finding against him by the jury. The, mm. What the What's jury did was they, they gave $2 million to Amber Heard from Johnny, and they gave $10 million to Johnny from Amber, and then added $5 million in punitives on top of that. But that got reduced. Virginia law has a provision that you can't have that much impunitive, so it got reduced to three hundred and fifty thousand. That she that she gave to him, or that he gave to her. That she owes to him ten total ten million three hundred fifty thousand, and then the amount right. he owes to her two million. Does she, so? Do they subtract it then? So is it just she owes him eight million? For most purposes, yes. I mean, it would just be that she owes him eight million. But just to, she ha- they're both on separate appeals. I mean. He could he could lose his appeal and his case is over and she could win her appeal. I mean, that's a theoretical thing that could happen. And if so, then he owes the two million and she gets a new trial. I mean, we don't really know what'll happen on the appeal. Is this I mean, what sort of wealth are we talking about with both of them? Do they is that is that is that change for them, pocket change, or is that like a lot of money for Amber Heard, eight million dollars? Well, according her attorneys say she doesn't have them have the money. Elaine Bradahoff, the attorney who got canned recently went on the morning talk shows and said, you know, Amber can't possibly pay for that. She doesn't have the money for that. So we, mm. you know, her story anyway is she can't pay for it. She hasn't paid an appeal bond for it as far as we know. So she just may not have the money. Now, Johnny probably has the cash. He could pay the $2 million. And And what happens with defamation when somebody simply can't pay? Well, what would happen is there could be an enforcement of the judgment against the person and you would go to the local court and you would try to get that, you would, you would get the judgment entered and you would try to enforce that by collections, just like you would, except it's a really big collection. $2 million is different from your, you know, average, you know, somebody didn't pay the rent for the last month. Bloody hell. And so she came out after the last, uh, after the court case, and she was, you know, in trouble, liable for defamation for saying, I believe that Johnny was a uh, a wife beater. And then did she go and say it immediately after in a new interview? So, um, yeah, the wife beater comment was a comment Depp made that he was found, um, that he was, well, <laughs> go back even hmm. further. One of the UK newspapers made that comment about Johnny, called him a white beater, and then he sued in the UK over that. And y'all probably are more familiar with that, you know, than even people in the US would be. Although this is pretty international by now, the news. And I forgot, what was your question? Just uh, so, so I, I believe that she was then found. What the defamation that she was found liable for was implying that that he was a wife beater, right? 
it was comments she had made in an op-ed she wrote in the Washington Post. And one of them specifically said, I was a victim of domestic abuse. And so that the implied statement, according to Johnny Depp's team, was that this means that you think Johnny Depp did this. You say he did this. And so that comment was one of the pivotal ones. And it's one of the main ones that's going to be on the appeal. We've already had comments from her attorneys saying, you know, that wasn't fair. She says she didn't write that title, that the Washington Post wrote the title of the op-ed. So it wasn't her fault. Mm. So that we'll, we'll watch that on appeal. It'll be very interesting. Do you have sympathy for that, um, for her argument there? For that, for her argument that she didn't write it? Um, yeah. I think there were two arguments. One was, okay, I didn't write that. And the other was, I never mentioned his name. I mean, there were more arguments, but, you know, I never mentioned his name. So how do you know I'm talking about Johnny Depp? And they're going to argue that, too. I have zero sympathy for that. I think it was completely clear that she was arguing that it was Johnny Depp. I mean, I don't think there was any question that everybody <laughs> thought that. The harder question legally, I think, is the one about her not writing the title. Um, the arguments for that, are, I think, on Depp's team are really strong. But that's going to be a serious issue on the appeal. Oh, it's going to be fascinating. I got a, a comment from Andy C seventy seven on in the in the comments. Uh, was she not abusive to Johnny? My understanding of that is that is that irrelevant to the case, or is it relevant? She, he definitely claimed that she was, but it wasn't really necessary for the defamation case because that wasn't. It came in. A lot of that evidence did come in. But yeah, I agree with you. It wasn't really relevant to the defamation case itself. It just sort of came in on the periphery. The main part that was his case against her was that she had abused him. What do you think of, um, I, I guess watching this, what, one of the main things that maybe British people watching this are shocked by is is how much this is in public. You know, we're not allowed to take cameras into court and yet this is like shown around the world. We can't believe it. It's such juicy gossip, I suppose. And at the same time, you get stuff read out like text messages and things from, uh, uh, you know, Johnny Depp talking to his friend and actor Paul Bettany, uh, where obviously they don't look very good. And that sort of scares me a little bit because I feel like if I'm Paul Bettany there, I think I haven't done anything wrong. I'm nothing to do with any of this. And my private messages are being read out in public. Is that a little bit scary or strange to you? What a great question. I mean, that is a really perceptive question about, I think that's really a problem that's going to be bigger for everyone. It's not just a US problem, but, you know, we have this sort of notion that a lot of the things we do are private. Like if you text somebody, you know, if you send an email that, oh, that's just between us. And it may not be, yeah. you know, there's an electronic record of that. And for the U.S., we we do have a belief that, you know, the court system is open. That does, a lot of judges won't allow recording, whether it be on TV or it, like with court TV broadcasting this, whether, regardless, they just don't allow that, even in the U.S. So it's not definite, but there is just a general presumption that the court system ought to be open, that there ought to be an availability of the public to be able to walk into the courtroom or these days see it on TV <laughs> electronically and know what's happening so that there's accountability. It is mm. still controversial, though. Not every judge thinks that a case should be broadcast. 
I suppose you're weighing up on one side the transparency of, you know, law and order and making sure that nothing, you know, gets missed out. Everybody can see that there was no foul play versus the privacy of the individuals involved, particularly those indirectly involved. Right. That is so true. And the judge is constantly supposed to be um, evaluating that. And that's one of the things that played into, you've probably seen some media coverage about some of the more some of the juicier facts that didn't come in at the trial and that are now being talked about because she made those documents public. Now that doesn't necessarily always happen after a trial, but she did make everything public. And so all those motions that the parties wrote saying, this is too embarrassing. Don't let it come into trial. Those are now public. And so is the information that the parties were trying to keep out on both sides. And also I was wondering, you know, what do you think of, of sort of having a jury and especially, and we have those as well, of course, um, especially given how public the case was, how could the jury not be, uh, you know, uh, moved by the press? And which was, I think, mostly on Johnny's side, perhaps rightly and fairly, but how do you ensure a fair trial? You know, the judge had, it was a long trial too. It wasn't like you know, it was just overnight and everybody could leave their cell phones at the courthouse. I mean, it was, you know, weeks and weeks and they had to stay um, separated from all of that, which is a normal part of life for most of us is going on social media or just reading the news. So in this case, what the judge did was every day she gave the jury a charge reminding them that you're not to go on social media. You're not to look at any of that information and you have to keep your understanding of the case limited to what you're seeing at the courthouse every day in the court. So, and there was, there was talk from Amber Heard after the trial about from her team about how it was really something where the jurors clearly were influenced that they clearly had gone out and seen this information in the public, but there was zero evidence of that. She was saying that, but there was no juror who had come forward and talked about that. There was no reason to believe that. And other than, you know, maybe somebody happened to mention it to somebody that what everybody pretty much thinks happened is that the jury followed those instructions. The court told them that. Yeah, still, it's, it's a bit of a, I do understand their point because you go home and put the TV on if you're a juror in that case, and you can't help but see both of their faces plastered all over the screen. Yeah, I think they would have had to have avoided any sort of media for, you know, that six week period. But think how interesting it would have been to have a front row seat on that too. That would have been interesting. Absolutely. You don't usually want to be called up for jury duty. I've never been called up for jury duty, but how does that work? Do they have to do like special P I guess it's just random people. And then you go, Oh, it's Johnny Depp that I've been called up for. Right. Yeah. You probably would until you got a questionnaire in the mail it told you or until you showed up at the courthouse and people said, okay, here are the judges and the party shall be here shortly. Here's the case. And boy, that would be so Uh, interesting. I think maybe like the one time that you, uh, you don't mind getting jury duty. I've got a comment from Ray J saying, I never ask his questions. I haven't, I haven't seen them. I don't think I'm seeing all the comments. I see you said, Oh, here we are. How would you rate Camille Vasquez's uh, performance uh, in comparison to Elaine? 
So um, I thought Camille was amazing. She did a really great job. She did an especially good job on cross-examination. I think um, Elaine Bredehoff got a hard time. A lot of people saying she wasn't as competent an attorney as particularly maybe as Ben Chu, who was the other attorney for Depp. I thought she did well. Had a, she had a certain set of facts to work with. I thought there were a few places where she faltered. And, and I thought, in particular, the first cross-examination of Johnny Depp just did not work. And, you know, that was a, you know, some place where Amber's team just kind of didn't make it. But I really thought the star of the case was Amber Heard. And where the case rose and fell was on Amber Heard and not on Elaine Bredehoff. Because I think it was, I have a series I've been doing now on my channel about the various types of evidence that really undermined Amber's credibility. Where did it go wrong? Because at the beginning, I at least was neutral. I knew almost nothing about the case. I just thought, well, well, I have a YouTube channel now. I'll, I'll blog some about this. And so I just started talking about the case. And it was only after I started watching the testimony that I was like, I don't really believe her. And I wondered what was it that made me not believe her, you know? And so I went back through did kind of a deep dive into what was the evidence and where did it go wrong? You know, how did I come to that conclusion, figuring that would be interesting for other people also who apparently reached the same conclusion. Well, yeah, I'm intrigued to hear what it is as well, because I'm also wondering what that is. And I, my, my concern, and it's only a, a small concern at the back of my head, is saying, is this some sort of internalized sexism? Uh, are we primed in some way to not believe women uh, and stuff like that? And I'm sure I'm not the only person. To, I'm not saying that is what it is. I'm just saying I'm, you know, maybe who knows if it is that. So what kind of stuff did you, did you see that you think it, that made her an unbelievable witness? The stuff I talked about was sort of very specific Defendant. to. Sorry. Okay. So what, not um, witness, was she? Hmm. Like I talked about the fact that um, I, I went through testimony and I have, I take the actual video from the trial. Like, okay, here's her testimony about Johnny Depp sitting there with ice cream melting on his lap. And when you listen to her testimony and you take it through that and then look at the cross, you sort of see it start to fall apart. She says, yeah, he was passed out and, you know, he spilled this ice cream. And then you, you kind of pull that apart and you realize, okay, well, after the cross-examination, he'd been working 17 hours. He says she placed the ice cream on his lap. She took the picture. She says she did it to help him, but then she sent it out to a friend. She did, And it just sort of suddenly starts to seem kind of mean instead of anything else. There was another one. She said, she wrote a friend that said, you know, yay for mornings. And she had a picture breakfast table with four lines of cocaine, um, a shot glass full. And, you know, I went through, okay, here's what, you know, here's what her testimony was about that. And here's how Depp's team, her thesis was, well, you know, Johnny Depp is right here about, he's been up all night partying and he has his table laid for more cocaine and more drinking. And it's in the morning. But when you sort of when you looked at the table, which had, you know, nut was, you know, had completely clean glass and it didn't look like anybody had been partying all night. <laughs> it did not look like that. And it sort of just fell apart, the testimony did. So you as you pulled it piece by piece, you just kind of stopped believing in what she was saying. And that was what I found as I sort of looked back through the evidence. 
Interesting. And I suppose there were there were bits about him being potentially abusive as well, weren't there? And then there were those those messages that I think it was unfair on Paul Bettany to have been shared, but of course, you know, saying about burning her body and things like that. And I think you do have to have, you know, room to be absurdist and horrible if you want. That's not a crime in a private message. But did did that concern you about Depp's behavior at all as as well? Definitely. And I thought that um, Amber Heard's team did a better job of bringing that out in the re in the examination of him on rebuttal than they did at first. And, Mm. you know, those things were disturbing. I don't think that, and he, but I thought a key difference was when that stuff was brought up, what you had Depp say was, Hey, that's really disturbing. I can't believe I said that that was appalling. And when stuff like that would be brought up that Amber Heard had said, she'd be, she'd have an explanation or, you know, she would argue with it. She never said, okay, yeah, what was I thinking? That was really stupid. (laughs) And I think that's one of the things that kept people from sympathizing with her and believing her. Interesting, man. Uh, Yeah, I I, I get everything that you're saying. I mean, so so what's what's the next stage? Does she have any chance, in your opinion, of, of turning this all around? I think she does. I mean, I think it's definitely possible. Anything can happen on appeal. And from the moment the verdict came down, I said, one thing you have to understand is in a six-week trial, there is something in there that's reversible. (laughs) You can't do a six-week trial with the probably thousands of rulings that the judge had to make, some of them on the spur of the moment, you know, objections that were made at trial. And you can't do that for six solid weeks and never have something that an appellate court would disagree with. You just absolutely can't. So sure, it's possible. I think there will be a lot of reluctance to overturn it. We all saw what a massive undertaking this was, what it cost in terms of the infrastructure that the city had, a Fairfax had to put up, what it, what it cost in terms of media scrutiny and all of those things. It was a really expensive long trial. I think it would be awfully, un- I think it would be tough for the appellate court to overturn this because so much was invested in it. The judge, as Karate, did an amazing job. She really did, ruling after ruling. She was just as fair and unbiased. I, I really, my hat was off to her. So there will be a lot of deference to her. If it gets reversed, it'll probably be on one of the big issues like, you know, First Amendment or some of the issues where, they are bringing in the new lawyers specifically aimed at those. Those are they're specifically lawyers who do First Amendment work. So that's obviously where Amber's heading on the appeal. I suppose a cynic might say that for uh, you know whether it's a huge undertaking or not, or how much money's going into it. Every day that this goes on is another day that the two of them stay at the top of the world headlines. That's true. That's true, and which is a good thing for Johnny. And actually, I'm not totally sure it's bad for Amber. You know the old saying about, you know, say anything you want about me, just spell my name correctly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so maybe it's a good thing no, for yeah. Amber too. No press is bad press. Um, yeah. I've got another question from Ray J. Speaking of press, actually, is what is Lee's view on the bad press, the law tubers? And we've had a few law tubers on the show. I'm a big fan of many of you guys are getting in U.S. media. Do you know much about that? Um, I'm sort of a newer law tuber, so I wasn't really involved. I, I suspect that what um, Ray, it was Ray J, right? Is Ray J, about. yeah, that's right. Yeah, I suspect there was a sort of um, altercation between some of the law tubers about one guy who actually went to the trial and made a big 
um, expression uh, during the trial. And he was sitting right behind, you know, the people doing the cross-examination. So it really showed on TV. And I think then there was a dispute over that. <laughs> I, I don't know a lot about it. I don't really have an opinion on that. But I, I saw them, you know, have an argument. Well, fair enough. Hey, tell me a little bit about what's going on with Elon Musk. Are you up to date with all that stuff and the Twitter legal cases happening? Well, I've certainly been following it. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. That's, you know, a an epic case, to say the least. Probably the most interesting thing to me is the judge actually told them they had to try that case two months. <laughs> she was like, well, I guess it was total three. But, you know, from the time it was filed to the time it's tried, three months. A case of that magnitude is absolutely crazy. And the people being deposed are, you know, Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk, the, some of the most difficult people you would ever get in a deposition to start with. And it's going to be fascinating. It really will be. What What is that? Just to spell it out, uh, can it be even spelled out in, in very layperson basic terms? What's happening? Um, yeah, I, think, I think it can. I did I did a, a video on this to try to break it down for people because I think it's an important case, but it can be real hard to understand sometimes, you know, yeah. all the legal forms, you aren't really sure. So essentially, you know, Elon Musk wanted, said he would buy Twitter and he went through with that, signed a document and Twitter says, when you sign that document, you had lots of chances, Elon, to put in things like, you know, I'll only buy it if we're going to do due diligence, we're going to do this and that. And you didn't, you didn't put any of that in, Elon. And so, in fact, you said, you know, we're going to just barrel ahead. I'm buying it. Okay. I'm buying it. Take this deal. And we did. And now you have other conditions and you now say you only want to buy it or that you refuse to buy it because we had um, a lot of fake accounts. He says there were a lot of fake accounts on there that are nothing but bots. They aren't real people. So it's kind of like if you said, well, I've got 15 customers, but half of them were fake and you only had seven, seven and a half customers. Then, you know, the, the person buying your grocery store or whatever would say, you know, oh, wow, I thought you had 15 customers. I'm not going to be able to make money. So Elon Musk is saying there aren't enough real people on it. You lied to me about that. And now that I know from some of the documents that there aren't enough, aren't real people behind these accounts. It's not as big. Uh, it shouldn't be as valuable as what I offered for it. Right. So, and, yeah. And he has counterclaims and a lawsuit all his own. So. And there's, I, I suppose there are, because on that, I mean, what you just explained is is terrible if that's what's happened. If they valued it at a certain, you know, and they've got fake accounts. I, I remember knowing about somebody um, in, in America who, who had a building, like a hotel kind of thing, and was inflating the prices in the contracts that people would sign, you know, and giving them a discount so that they would sign things in the contract saying that they were paying more than they were. So when he sold the hotel, he sold it to people who thought they would be able to get better prices than they than they got and i suppose this is and then when you know they found oh god no one's paying these prices and they bought something for much more than it was worth it's a similar thing wow. on the other side people are suggesting that elon musk knew that this would happen because surely he had wow. a good idea of the amount of bots he's elon musk uh, and is doing this to devalue twitter could that be happening that's exactly what Twitter's arguing. And they're saying too, not only did you already know this, but the whole reason you said you wanted to buy us is because you said you thought we had a lot of fake accounts and you, that we needed to come clean on that. And so, you know, what's the surprise here? And so it, it'll be fascinating to see because this is sort of 
I mean, and it's so expressed. So, you know, you got three months, get the whole thing over and done with. And you've got thousands probably of lawyers working on this all at the same time. It's, it's really a fascinating case. Uh, when does that, when will we know, when's that all kicking off? I don't remember the date, but I think it was October is when the trial is supposed to be. Okay. Oh, it's all kicking off. It's really exciting because, and that's just the law, the law case. But of course, there's so much to discuss if we had more time. Of course, around Elon Musk, uh, if he were to take over Twitter, what that would mean for freedom of speech, and whether it's okay for private companies to be blocking people's, or whether they have a moral duty to do it. It's just a whole fascinating uh, can of philosophical worms isn't it we've got like a couple minutes left so do you want to just tell us a, a little bit about uh your channel and where people can find you and, and why they should go and find you yeah sure um my channel is harvard lawyer lee and i talk about some of the most interesting cases of our day really anything really absolutely fascinating and my goal is to take the cases and make them something you can understand not just a bunch of legal mumbo jumbo but something <laughs> where you can say okay yeah, I get that. And it can become something that, you know, when somebody's talking about it at the water cooler, you're sort of scratching your head wondering, what is that about? <laughs> you can understand it. Okay. That's what the case is about. And I love doing videos and stuff, taking it straight from the trial when that's available. So you can watch it for yourself and sort of judge for yourself. How are the people doing? What do you think about it? Truthfully, I just love law <laughs> and I love legal <laughs> cases. So it's a lot of fun for me, you know, working on this and doing the videos and I love interacting with the comments. I've just had a great time doing it. Well, I think that you law tubers are an important staple of democracy because as you say, I mean, the law stuff can sometimes be a little bit out of reach for those of us who haven't studied it and mm -hmm. we need to be able to, you know, made to understand it if we want to follow the cases. So I, I would I would urge uh, viewers to go check out Harvard lawyer Lee and subscribe and say nice things to her. Um, Lee, thank you so much for joining us and have a lovely thank day. You. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, that was Harvard Lawyer Lee. I'm going to bring Sean back on. How are you doing, mate? Yep, all right. How about yourself? Pretty good. She was great. That was fascinating. Explained it yeah, all. Yeah, she's such you know, powerful speaker, isn't she? Well, aren't we all, mate? Working on it. <laughs> Shall I leave you to <laughs> the dark journalist? Yes, bugger off, my friend. I'm out of here. Ba 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 ba. Adios. All right, we are welcoming back the dark journalist, DJ. 30 minutes is safe for YouTube. We're going to do the unmentionables on Patreon at 8.10. First 30 minutes, are we focusing on UFO file secrecy, the secret space program, government UFO programs like ARRO, which I've never heard of, which are being used as a smokescreen, and CIA Homeland Security Disclosure versus Real Disclosure. Sure, you guys are gonna have loads of questions for DJ. If you want to put them in the chat, Ash will collate them. So let's bring him in, shall we? Hey, thank you for coming back, my friend. How's it going? How are you, Sean? It's good to see you. Yeah, excellent. Do you want to just tell the viewers a little bit about you first before we get into all this? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, the kind of journalism I do is dark journalism. It goes uh, into those places that really the mainstream media is walled off and uh, created choke points for certain stories that come up and then get dismissed. Uh, there's an emphasis around the black budget, aerospace, runaway 
UFO op train. And uh, I also do quite a bit with uh, the mystery schools. And um, so we got kind of two parallel tracks there. And, uh, you know, a lot of this gets into the deep state. You're going to find yourself, whether you're studying mystery school work or if you're looking deeper on advanced technology, somehow you keep bumping into that deep state. And uh, that deep state goes global. But the American deep state is something that we really report the most on. Yeah, I got kicked off YouTube twice by the deep state for coverage of a subject I'm no longer allowed to cover. So is it the case that once a subject gets so much attention from an entity, like small entities are allowed to cover that subject, but once it gets to some kind of critical mass, then the deep state is going to shut you down? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, the kind of censorship that we've experienced, and you know, you went through it when they took your channel down, you rebuilt it. And uh, it's, it's interesting because what they're looking to do is create a one narrative planet, really. And when it came to the major medical emergencies, when it came to the political situations, um, they can't stand conversation. They can't stand debate because in the marketplace of ideas, very often the people who are behind these things uh, don't have quite a majority. You know, if you look around, even at a lot of the leaders that are going on right now, like Biden and Trudeau and, and people of this ilk, um, they don't have a lot of support, you know, Biden surfaces maybe around 29, 30%, and that's in Democrat polls that favor him. So the media is very much like that as well. Their approval rating is somewhere around 7%. Wow. <laughs> so when we look at this, we see that they don't have enough to govern. So if they don't take control of that digital conversation, um, then we get into all kinds of problems. Of course, when they do that, um, they also run the risk of exposing themselves as a kind of McCarthyite uh, censorship, you know, this is a, a kind of a red baiting situation where they get to cancel somebody that they don't like their politics. And, um, you know, at this point in the world, there's too much freedom. So it's like putting the genie back in the bottle. But nonetheless, I think what they do is extremely dangerous. Indeed, it is. All right. So Vannevar Bush, John Trump, Nikola Tesla, UFO <laughs> Connection. Just a few of our friends, right? <laughs> uh, well, this is interesting. There's so much about the UFO file right now. And the government's claiming, you know, every day there's a new media thing like, oh, wow, we just discovered UFOs in 2017 with this New York Times article. And um, if you go just even a half inch deep, it's all Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, they're the people that are being quoted. They're the people who are starting the companies like uh, to the Stars Academy, for example. And if you look at To the Stars Academy, which is one of the big purveyors of this, you know, this is the new disclosure for UFOs and forget about 75 years of research and the government lying. Um, these are all fundamentally, if you look at them, you know, 25 years at the top of the CIA directorate. That's the VP of operations, Jim Semivan. So you're looking at the CIA coming in and saying, you know what, we can actually use this UFO thing now. We've been studying it 75 years, you know, the National Security Act actually is coming up to a great birthday anniversary here uh, in uh, September. And that's going to be 75 years since the CIA got created. And their number one job, uh, you know, aside from overthrowing <laughs> elections is and assassinating, uh, you know, leaders is that they've kept the secrecy on the UFO file. So um, if you go back through that, you'll find out that they've kept those 75 years, but who was active 
early on in protecting it. And you're going to find uh, you, you run across the scientist, the top scientist at the time named Vannevar Bush, uh, who was from around here, actually, where I am in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And uh, Bush was the head of MIT, which is about 10 minutes from here. And um, he basically, he was a master mason and he kept incredible secrecy. And so when it came around time to hiding the UFO file, say around the early 40s, this is the person that they turned to. And uh, he was working for FDR and a number of scientific endeavors and the Manhattan Project. So, uh, you know, this is a good guy to turn to for it. But if you go through, and this is something that we exposed, um, if you go through the MIT background, you're going to find his number one protege was Dr. John Trump, Professor John Trump. And that is Trump's uncle. And um, so that shows us that there's a background there because when we look at Vannevar Bush as this person who ushered in the UFO file and the secrecy around it, and that's another thing about Van Bush, which is it's on the record from top physicists that this guy did this. Um, so it's not something where people are like, well, hey, you know, the MJ-12 documents came out and maybe they're real or not. In this case, there's an actual top physicist uh, who came out and identified Bush as the leader of that. So to find that his top protege is Trump's uncle and then next that he was suggested by Bush to handle the Nikola Tesla papers upon Tesla's death, suddenly the entire situation that we're in in relation to the UFO file, the Trump uh, situation, the activity of the deep state, um, even the FBI raid at Mar-a-Lago, everything looks a little bit differently if you have the history and context. So was Prescott Bush involved in this or was he busy laundering money for the Nazis? <laughs> That's true. Well, interestingly enough, this Vannevar Bush is not related to Prescott. Oh, it's uh, not. It's no, not. He's not. I thought we <laughs> were. This is the what a tentacle of the Bush crime family. <laughs> it's an accident of history that they have the same name, um, but they ran in the same circles for sure. Uh, I think Prescott Bush. It's pretty interesting that you mentioned that because, uh, of course, he was at the time of World War II. He was actually running a bank in uh, the Union Bank in New York. And his top uh, man was the person who became the top uh, of the CIA, which is Alan Dulles. And he was the top lawyer for this bank. And they both got raided by FDR's Justice Department for trading with the enemy. And uh, I went deep on this to figure out why didn't Bush get any jail time for that? And of course, Senator Prescott Bush is the father of George Bush. Bush won, who's uh, our first president. And then his son, of course, became President uh, W there. Um, but if you look at this, you're going to find a thread with these guys. And in the case of Prescott Bush, he was running the USO and this was his cover. So when he got caught trading with the enemy, they didn't prosecute him because they thought, oh, it's going to be too demoralizing. And, uh, but then that became the Bush dynasty and you're going to find them throughout history in America, altering things. Uh, they're involved in the JFK assassination, Iran Contra, continuity of government, the real problem with the Bushes uh, in this country, and they're very active now trying to control uh, the political thing, even to the point of siding with Democrats to make sure that this populism thing doesn't run through the Republican Libertarian Party and take over the presidency again like Trump did in 2060. So we have a question from one of the viewers here who wants to know why Prescott Bush funded the Nazis profit, surely and control power 
Didn't they have investments in the... Uh, it was so evil they had investments in the mines at Auschwitz and things like that? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of American companies. Actually, there's an excellent book called Trading with the Enemy, um, which came out in, I think, 1981 that lists that really tight relationship. And they've shied away from it, actually. Joseph Farrell's work touches on this as well. And uh, he's an Oxford guy. <laughs> but my thing on, on this is it's pretty obvious that those companies were setting up Hitler. They were positioning him. There was a lot of American activity on that. Uh, you have to remember in the 30s that Adolf Hitler was kind of, you know, the it guy. He was hosting the Olympics in Berlin. And, you know, he was the toast of America and all these other countries. And um, then they, you know, that whole machine that turns into Hitler taking over is pretty well funded from Western powers. So he's, he's one of their guys. And uh, what happens is there are companies here like IBM and all the rest of it that help him run the concentration camps and just the massive, um, you know, put down of the population. So our, our countries were very much involved with that. And so the fact that Bush got involved, I mean, the Bush family has that history, whether it's drug running, um, you know, illegal arms and their mafia ties that, uh, you know, they got involved on a political basis, really, to control a number of these areas. And oil became um, one of the key ones. But the hidden one is exotic technology. And people don't get that in relation to this ruling political structure. That's what I'm trying to put on the map. You know, you do such great shows on the mafia, I can tell you all about an aerospace mafia that would blow your mind. <laughs> Which takes us over back to the secret space program. Yes. And A-R-R-O, which I've never heard of. Yes, it's A-A-R-O, and um, that's the new UFO office. That's like Project Blue Book, you know, Redux for 2022. And... Um, this thing was tagged on. It was brought on to the government program. So you got people like Senator Rubio, you know, some more corrupt elements in the Senate. Uh, Kirsten Gillibrand is another one in New York. Those are Democrats and Republicans working together to get this. And it's unusual, but what they want to do is create a UFO threat operation through the intelligence agencies and create the kind of environment where, oh, there are aliens attacking us. We need all your money and we need to blow away the traditional constitutional rules because we have this threat. Now, if you look at the things that they do uh, in relation to emergency powers, you're going to find you know, the UFO threat is the ultimate card that they have in their back pocket. And that's why you're hearing so much about it because they need emergency powers. They, they don't have the powers of the governed. And after the uh, fiasco with the medical emergency and the things that they put in there with lockdowns and everything else, the popularity around these people has dwindled uh, pretty dramatically. So the emergency powers piece is dramatic. What's bigger than a UFO emergency? That's what that AARO is all about. Um, it's, a, it's a new office. It's funded through the National Defense Authorization Act. So this is, just think of that as me saying they funded it through blackmail. <laughs> um, because the National Defense Authorization Act is what runs the military in America. And uh, it's $800 billion a year on record, probably more, probably more like a, tr a trillion or two in the black budget sense. But at least on record, we know it's $800 billion. And every president signs on to this thing. Well, these senators that are in the Senate Intelligence Committee, like the ones who set up Arrow, um, they're able to include and latch on things to that NDAA. And if you don't go along with it, 
well, you're blocking all this money, so everyone's going to have your head on a platter. So they've been running this AARO and the emergency powers directly through the National Defense Authorization Act. And every president, whether it's Trump or Biden or Bush or Obama, signs that thing, and it is completely unanimous in Congress. There's nobody who says anything. So when they say, oh, we have gridlock, we have these parties fighting each other, it's terrible. Well, these guys all get together for $800 billion at the end of every year. So don't believe it. Where does it go? It goes to the military. It's uh, it's the DOD, and that includes their black projects. And uh, now they have a UFO office, which is going to be UFO defense. So in order to have a defense, you need an enemy. And they figure, well, Iran, you know, it's, it's not really going to do it. They've got Russia, which they've been, you know, they've been engaged in really ticking them off by putting NATO on their doorstep. And now you have Russia going in uh, with Ukraine. So you have that, but they really need a big enemy and to get the kind of funding that they want. And the CIA has been working on this for decades. And now their people come out, they, they don't even have covers for them. They're like, I'm a CIA guy. And uh, in the case of Semivan and another one named Ramirez, who's all over the place, uh, John Ramirez and Jim Semivan, they come out and they say, well, you know what? We've actually had experiences with aliens. We've been taken aboard ships and things. These are CIA guys, like high level CIA people. So in my opinion, they're building a kind of psychological operation that we haven't seen before. Um, and so the situation is dangerous and involves real money. So is it on the same basis as the Halliburton Dick Cheney scam that this, all these billions of dollars end up in the pockets of the people running these defense companies, attack companies? Well, the defense contractors have to be satisfied. That's part of the aerospace mafia, actually. Lockheed Martin, Boeing, um, you know, they're all included in there, and they're the ones who make the nuclear weapons. They're the ones who make our tactical uh, weapons. They're the ones who make the rockets, and they're the ones who are controlling the space program and data. So if you want something, you know, if you want a whole database uh, of Americans who are protesters, for example. It's, the government doesn't hold it. Lockheed Martin holds it and, and lends it to the government. So it's kind of interesting. Um, what we need to do, I think, when we look at this, if you look at a case like Cheney and Halliburton and the way that they were able to do this, Cheney's very interesting because um, he was part of this program of setting up the continuity of government program. And this is what I think they're planning to use for the big emergency threats. And a continuity of government is budgeted every year, billions of dollars. It's a completely hidden program in the United States. Uh, it does have links to Great Britain. And um, one of the things that they've been doing with the emergency powers around this is creating a whole scenario of this NORTHCOM commander, which is the NORTHCOM is the military command since 9-11 that controls America. And um, this guy that they have in charge there now it, it talks openly about UFOs, which is odd. None of them have before. But in the case of them saying, well, we have an emergency and the continuity of government needs to be activated, this guy would take over. And so I try to put him on the record. He's General Van Herc. He's the head of NORTHCOM. And he's slated to take over uh, America with a, a bunch of regional governors and suspend the Constitution if there's an emergency. So originally, you know, those guys in the government, like Eisenhower, JFK, they set it up if there was a nuclear emergency because we were in a Cold War, and they figured, well, you need this underground government for this. But in fact, they changed that, and Cheney was one of the people who changed it to just any emergency. 
So, you know, cyber attack, continuity of government, here we go. So COG is something we need to catch up on really fast. This is something that has no oversight in Congress because it's too secret. And uh, when we talk about the secret space program, it's pretty simple. I'm going to put it to you this way. If you look at the secret space program in 1972 is the last time that we had a manned moon mission. That's 50 years out. So what do you do for 50 years in between? There's no manned programs for 50 years. No, there's definitely manned programs. You just don't talk about them anymore. So uh, they've taken those same rules that they set up for the continuity of government program and they've applied them into space. So that's the nature of the situation we're looking at. When we see the secrecy, you're surrounded by secrecy. And uh, what they're doing is they're getting us caught up in, oh, isn't the Ukraine thing? Or I'm pro-Russia, you know, whatever it is. And they'll get you bogged down in a number of social issues. This is how the media works. So you don't talk about what's really going on. So you mentioned then manufacturing enemies to siphon off billions of taxpayers' money into these defense companies. I mean, how dangerous a game is that? in a nuclear era? Oh, it's, it's extremely dangerous with this group because um, when I talk to people who've been in government, their typical response is the neocons will get you killed. And uh, the neocons have now moved into the Democratic side. They used to be so cozy with the Republicans and then it became popular in Republican things to say, you know, well, I'm getting out of foreign wars. <laughs> um, and so now the Democrats are all like, hey, you know, we need to go in there and face off against Russia. Well, Russia's a nuclear powered nation. I mean, you know, this is ridiculous. They have nuclear weapons. And the idea of having an actual shooting war with them is the worst decision that you could possibly make uh, besides leaving hundreds of billions of dollars behind for Afghanistan. <laughs> you know, uh, they, they did this, which is they left these really high end weapons behind there and just took off. Um, but I think the Russian situation is particularly unique because they're on the same level with us. This is the piece that's never talked about. They're on the same level with us on the UFO file. And this is where the real battle is. Forget about a lot of the things that we hear like, oh, you know, there's anomalies in the air and Congress is dealing, you know, getting to the bottom of this. That's all ridiculous. They've worked on the program. They figured out for 75 years this advanced uh, exotic technology, whether it's off world or something that was created here. They know it. They know it inside and out. So the idea that they've just discovered it and, you know, that the CIA is going to kind of bring us to Jesus is, is really stretching the truth. So um, the UFO piece becomes a dangerous aspect of what they're doing also, because what they're trying to do is rush this so that they can maintain control and have an enemy. And they're trying to get everyone on board. They're like, well, you know, they've had all these movies and TV shows about UFOs. So they shouldn't be so surprised when they get our version of this thing. And uh, that's uh, that's where they're going. And it, I think dangerous is the word, just like you, you coined the word there. Which leads us on to CIA Homeland Security Disclosure versus Real Disclosure. Well, that's, that's exactly what we're talking about. Absolutely. So um, what we're faced with in the media now is central intelligence agency disclosure. So today, you know, pick up Twitter or pick up The Hill or New York Times, and you'll find a little thing about, wow, Congress just said that UFOs are actually not man-made. So the only conclusion left is they're extraterrestrial. Gee whiz, you know. So they block the issue through the CIA and the media for 75 years. And then when they want it out, they've got this version of a threat idea. They create this phony office 
AARO, and they've got the director of national intelligence in charge of it. So, um, you know, the histories around these people are very interesting. So CIA disclosure now becomes the type of disclosure that people were looking for. Say 10 years ago, you'd have people out there who are researchers who are like, I want the government to give up their records. You know, I want these things to happen. I want to know about aliens and, and flying saucers because we've had them for so long. And these little things have dribbled out. But everybody knows that there's something else advanced that's flying around out there. And, uh, you know, that's just one of those things we know. Just, I mean, people know that the Central Intelligence Agency assassinated JFK. It's not, it's like in the subconscious there at this point. So the idea that the government gets to keep this stuff and then create their own warped version of a disclosure is what we're looking at. And their disclosure, though, is all about this thing being a threat. And that's where the trick is because that's where the money and the power is located. If they can convince you you're under threat, well, you know, stay in your homes. There are aliens out there. We're going to, you know, we're going to ward them off and just forget about the constitution. That's basically a scenario that they've been working with, but they, they're building it in. And uh, whenever you look around, like here, for example, we have um, the Galileo project, which is right behind me here at Harvard university. And that's Avi Loeb, who is Israeli intelligence. And all his board was supposed to be all scientists. So I kept a close eye on the Galileo project. And all the board, are, again, it's all CIA people, including this fake whistleblower, uh, Elizondo, and the guys like Christopher Mellon, Mellon, who are you know really millionaires. And um, so we're looking at some very dodgy uh, figures involved in this. So we've just got approximately five minutes left with the dark journalist. Please put any questions for him in the chat and we will handle those. And the first question is from a Nexus. What do you think about Cheney saying that Donald Trump is the greatest threat right now? Oh, it's very interesting. Yeah. Well, if you think about this, how odd is that? Because uh, Cheney is supposed to be you know, a Republican. And uh, the old thing among Republicans was don't speak ill of your fellow Republicans. Well, now he's saying this guy's the biggest threat, period. So you have to wonder, you know, Cheney's the big nation builder. He's the one who bombed all the Iraqi citizens. He's the one who got the oil. He's the one who went after Afghanistan and all the cover up around 9-11. Why does this guy hate someone in his own party? Uh, so it shows that Trump, whatever else we might want to think about him, upsets the apple cart for them, uh, which I think is significant. And uh, I also think that the continuity of government program that I mentioned earlier is part of the reason that the Cheneys and the Bushes hate Trump so much. You know, they're all supposed to be happy-go-lucky Republicans. What is it we're seeing here? Well, his daughter is leading the charge with this J6 committee against Trump. That's weird, too, because it's all Democrats. So her and Pelosi are doing that, and she just got trounced uh, in the Wyoming primary. So she's no longer even a congresswoman because the Republicans are like, what's going on here? Um, so you have weird behind-the-scenes uh, situations. Whatever it is that Trump represents, and he has a series of his own connections that are unusual, but let's, think of, let's go back to his uncle for a minute. If John Trump was aware of this advanced exotic technology back in the day, then is that maybe a better reason than this, oh, we don't like this big mouth real estate guy, Trump. Maybe the knowledge he's going in with is a little too rich. Yeah, and I saw the uh, Cheney video. I think it was on Russell Brand's channel. Shout out to Russell. I fear for him, though, with the things he's covering. Um, 
<laughs> he Cheney's voice. He sounded like the Cookie Monster on a late night out smoking illicit substances. With that creepy, <laughs> this creepy music in the background. And he's saying, Well, he's you know, we call like... him Darth Vader here because, uh, and he also, he has that strange cyber organism for his respiratory system. So he, he's literally half cyborg at this point. Yeah, wasn't there a documentary, um, uh, Dick Cheney's Heart or something? Oh, yes, hard. exactly. And he's he's had a mechanical ticker for a number of years, um, but it just suits him in that case. I mean, how much more perfect can you get than Darth Vader? You know. So Dub wants uh, this to know guy though has been a villain. He, he's been involved. In, if people look at this, a lot of people just associate him with the Bush era, but he goes all the way back to Nixon. You find him in 1969 and 70 working for Nixon. So that's a very deep operator. Wow. We've got time for perhaps one or two questions. Uh, Dub wants to know your thoughts on the USA making a payment of allegedly $83 billion in military weapons leaving Afghanistan. Yeah, it's, it's higher than that. It's actually, it's over a hundred million and a uh, hundred billion. I'm sorry. And what that is, is, you know, we had the top, our top military uh, jets, helicopters, guns, the whole bed. And then when we took off the way we took off last summer, which, you know, you wanted them to get out, out of Afghanistan 20 years ago. Yes, for sure. And uh, Trump had a plan to get out. Uh, what's weird is if you look at that, it's actually Obama who added 40,000 troops. It's strange, isn't it? When you look at that, he's supposed to be like the Democrat <laughs> and you'd think he'd be drawing things down, but he added troops. So Trump gets the levels down. And then when Biden comes in, they take off. They literally just run out of there and they leave behind this advanced weaponry, which means the Taliban, which is the original group, you know, who started 9-11, supposedly that ridiculous story about these guys in a cave with remote control, you know, cell phones talking to box cutter guys here. <laughs> I mean, the, the stories don't add up. Um, and the idea that these guys could take down a national defense system in the air that had been built to fight the Chinese and the Russians uh, by just showing up on these planes and, and taking them over. It doesn't happen. And, and the idea of flying planes into the Pentagon, you'd never see it. They're too well uh, guarded. You, know, you can't even bicycle close to the Pentagon. So <laughs> you're not going to fly a plane. <laughs> Which is bringing us into dangerous territory on YouTube. So we're going to go <laughs> over to Patreon. Russ has sent a question in which we'll answer on Patreon. It's about the Order of the Nine Angles. And we've also got Kevin Annette on, who is an expert in the Catholic Church, Order of the Nine Angles, that kind of stuff. He's coming on later on Patreon. And the link is in the description box below this video. Um, Dark Journalist, please tell the viewers where they can find you and support you. Thank you. It's been great to be here. Yes, uh, it's darkjournalist.com. That's where all the shows are. On YouTube, of course, the X series is something we do every Friday night. And you just look up Dark Journalist X series and we'll be there. Oh, brilliant. And I will see you momentarily, my friend. Take care. I'll be there. Cheers. Bye. Okay. All right. Hope you've enjoyed this section. And like I said, we're going to go over to Patreon now. We will be booting back up in 10 minutes with the Dark Journalist on subjects that we can't get into on this channel, including Who Killed E's crime partner, G, the obsession with Atlantis, MIT, Marvin Minsky, KFC, Colonel Sanders, Atlantis Search, the 
who killed E and G, search for top scientists, and the Atlantis Belial transhumanist cult. And its uh, link will be in the description box. Tomorrow night's podcast is going out at six. It is Kev Warren, Michael Francis's bodyguard out of Liverpool on crime stories and Purple Aki and Darren G and bodyguarding Mike Tyson. Then Sunday, Jamie Morgan came part four at six o'clock. And then Monday, we've got a surprise celebrity guest that we're going to announce in the next couple of days. It's going to be insane. <laughs> Can't wait for you to see that one. Huge thank you for everyone joining the show this evening. Atwood Unleashed will be back next Wednesday at 5.45. And as promised, I will be doing a pre-record with Billy Hayes to make up for what happened this evening. Take care out there, wherever you are in the world. See you soon. Cheers. Welcome to Atwood Unleashed 71 Part 2, where we can talk about the unmentionables. And as I said, as we left off with The Dark Journalist, we are going to continue that conversation. So I'm about to bring him in. Please bear with me. Huge thank you to everyone for joining us tonight. Massive thank you to the Patreons. And for being part of this brilliant community over here. Where DJ is about to be unleashed. Get some real hot stuff out of him now. Including Maxwell, Epstein, Atlantis. Top scientists, transhumanist cults. see if he's coming in yep he's accepted and connecting should be coming in momentarily and pity about billy hayes earlier on but i'm going to do a pre-record with him and we'll get that as a premiere there's also a couple of mafia guys i'm going to be hooking up with out of america a couple of prison guys some mafia guys uh, mafia guys that michael francis has had on Hey, how's it going? How are you, Sean? Yeah, good. I had a little connection issue. It took a little bit of time there as well, so don't sweat it. I don't know if it's picking up this mic because it gave me an option for the laptop, but it didn't give me an option, so I'll shout a little bit for this. Yeah, it's coming through the mic. I I can hear it. It it sounds fine, I think. Okay, good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. All right, so... Let's get down to it then. Maxwell, Atlantis, you know, this is all the stuff that I really enjoy covering, but I am prohibited yeah, from. Yeah, well, you, you've done some good coverage on it, and uh, that's one of the reasons they, they nabbed you on YouTube, is it not? Yeah, they said we were cyberbullying Maxwell and Prince Andrew, and all these strikes came in, and bam, it was gone, but, but the public lobbied and got it back for freedom of speech. Fantastic. Yeah, there's a lot of weirdness uh, around that Andrew trial. The Andrew trial, uh, their Virginia Jufre, actually, uh, trial let out something remarkable. And it's the reason the whole hot zone area of uh, the work that I do can explode the way it has been exploding with information. And I'll tell you what was in there. So Jufre had this whole complaint against Andrew. And uh, what she ended up doing was revealing the fact that Epstein and Maxwell were targeting two people that are very unusual in all this. Marvin Minsky was one of them, but Alexandra Cousteau. Uh, Alexandra Cousteau, her dad, is the, her grandfather actually was Jacques Cousteau, who did all the Atlantis Quest stuff. 
Marvin Minsky is the guy who created AI and was involved in creating the internet. He's such a high level MIT guy. It was over the top. And they were targeting him with her for sexual favors to get blackmail on him, obviously to extort and get him into their project. Now, no one knows what the nature of the project uh, is. And that's what I'm going to tell you today, which is it's all about what's going on in this area called the hot zone. Um, and the hot zone is an area that's between uh, Bimini on one side, the western tip of Cuba on the other, and the Yucatan Peninsula. It's that whole area. And what I found out a few years ago um, in doing investigations is that when people work there, either for the military or mapping the ocean floor or looking for minerals or whatever, they have to sign a document saying, if you see ruins down there, you can't mention it. So if you see like the Temple of Isis, forget it. <laughs> So this is the first red flag. Um, and if you go back in history, you're going to find there's a British uh, intelligence agent who was obsessed with this question around Atlantis. And that's from 1940s, 1950s. His name was Egerton Sykes. And he built the biggest library and worked with the most scientists around finding Atlantis in that area. Well, um, the reason they call it the hot zone is because if you discover something down there, you can actually be court-martialed if you're in the military or you, um, you know, you can go to jail as a member of a company for violating your NDA. So uh, it's, a, it's a high stakes area, but nobody really knows. What do you mean? Like, you know, there's ruins under there. What's the big deal? Well, there's something, there's some big deal to a lot of these people uh, engaged in it. And a lot of the idea gets back to um, some of the things that we heard about in the Edgar Casey readings dealing with Atlantis and the cult of the wild. So a lot of those mystery schools have given us that setup, that background and what Atlantis is. And uh, Belial was this basically technology cult and that they existed in a time before the pyramids, before Egypt and all that. And they were high-end, sophisticated um, scientists who basically blew themselves up. That's, you know, our story of Atlantis now gets more to that than say Plato's, it's the same story that they blew themselves up and nobody knows how and what the deal was. So um, the Atlantis story, these people take very, very seriously. And the secret societies that are built around groups like Maxwell and Epstein believe very much in uh, this cult of Belial. And it was two groups. So the Amelia's group wanted to use the tech for spiritual purposes. And um, that's the legend that's in the mystery schools. And the Belial group wanted, it was like a might is right type thing. So they wanted to take over using the same technology. So the scope of what Epstein was covering seems staggering. I mean, the amount of information that just keeps coming out, you know, what you've just said. What do you think was his ultimate purpose? Well, listen, this is a guy who used to come up here to Harvard, and he was funding research over here that had to do with genetics and eugenics. And there's an office over here right in Harvard where he used to walk in, fund them, get all of his like monthly um, pieces on that. And Ghislaine and Epstein used to meet in a cafe <laughs> literally a few blocks from here. The thing is, what's interesting about this for me is that it tells us a lot about his associations. Um, if you go and look at Epstein Island, you're going to find some strange visitors along with Gates and Clinton and all that stuff. So there's such a sexual fury on top and such a scandal thing with what he was doing. But go a little bit deeper and you'll find Stephen Hawking there. 
Well, Hawking's not there for any, you know, sexual romp. So what's he doing there? Um, they built a submarine for him called Atlantis, specially built for his handicap. And they took him underwater in the Atlantis submarine. What is he looking at? Well, obviously, he's looking at the same thing that's in the hot zone that all these people are under these sworn testimonies not to look at. Whatever this thing is, it charges this cult up. Now, there's an idea of hidden technology. There's an idea of archaeology wars. So some people might say, well, if, if they had advanced technology in ancient times, you know, it's, it's long gone. So what's the point? Uh, apparently, there this group that is around the cult of Belial believes there's advanced technology there under the Bahamas. And they want to rebirth. They think their spiritual roots are in this Belial group. But when you look and you see Marvin Minsky, the top AI guy, and them targeting him, well, who are the people who stand out? Um, so if you look at Cousteau's granddaughter, that's odd because she's not a scientist. So why are they targeting her? And according to Jufre, trying to get compromising material, like showing her at orgies and things like that. Well, it was always rumored that Cousteau found a lot more uh, underwater than he let on to, and that this was part of this whole program. So something about Epstein's project, there's the grand political design on top. But if you look at things like Zorro Ranch, which has a lot of this Atlantean, you know, mercury imagery, and then you go to Epstein Island, which is in the hot zone, you're looking at uh, an extra feature. And the hot zone piece, the Atlantis cult, is the piece that's not understood. And I, I'm going to bring in another uh, deep association on this, which has to do with Colonel Sanders. The weird one. This is another person who you look at this. These people. I mean, see champion himself. And when I did the research on it, I couldn't believe it. But his daughter was in charge of a Atlantis mission. They spent a lot of their money looking for Atlantis in the hot zone. And um, here's the interesting piece on her, which is Marvin Minsky, who they were targeting with Jufre and trying to get blackmail on so they could get him on board with this uh, project. Marvin Minsky's best friend was Margaret Sanders, who's the daughter of Colonel Sanders, doing this thing they call the Mars Archaeology Project. And uh, she was going through that area of Bimini in the Bahamas looking for ancient ruins of Atlantis. So you've got a direct link there through the Sanders family, Minsky, and then the Epstein-Maxwell group through the Jufre filing. We find out they were targeting them. Well, if you put that together with Alexander Cousteau, you're, it's, a, it's a big Atlantis whirligig. <laughs> That's, what we're looking at. That's the secret piece there. Wow, this is absolutely mind-blowing. So Maria Farmer described Epstein as like a, a mid-level manager person under Wexner. Is this apparatus still functioning then without Epstein and Maxwell? I think it took a pretty big hit. Um, I'll tell you what I think is very telling, and I did a short video on it last week, and it has to do with this A-17 thing that came up in Trump's Mar-a-Lago raid. Um, if you go back to November 2021, Maxwell gives her first interview from prison. And uh, Ghislaine is going off complaining about things, but in unusual ways. And one of the things she brings up is Chernobyl, saying that, oh, my food is nuked like Chernobyl. It's a pretty weird reference. I mean, Chernobyl, you know, it's an 80s 
nuclear accidents in Ukraine. So three months later, you get the Ukraine war. That was the first uh, telling thing that she was kind of communicating in code in steganography. And um, in that conversation, you'll see that she invents an imaginary friend who does all this paranormal stuff. I kid you not in the interview, and she calls it A-17. It's not explained what this is, but she says, oh, it scares the guards because it turns lights on, it flushes toilets, it does all these various things. So A-17 is this weird code she's giving out from prison. Right after that, uh, a little while after that, they move her down to Florida after her sentencing. And um, Trump gets raided, then Mar-a-Lago gets raided, and one of the boxes that they grab in there is, is labeled A-17. <laughs> so um, that's pretty interesting, you know, uh, because it's, she's talking nine months before that even happened. So uh, if you want to talk about if this thing is still operating, my guess is she's able to send messages through those interviews. And, um, you know, I don't think you have to be super, um, you know, sophisticated on the message front to catch the drift of some of them. She's communicating with somebody. One of them was about, uh, like I said, Chernobyl, and the other one about A-17. I think A-17 somehow is related to this. Maybe that's what they were looking for in the raid. So one of the biggest stories in true crime, public outrage over the heinousness of the crimes. She gets the big sentence, and now the media reports she's playing tennis and doing yoga in a minimum camp in Florida. Is this a quid pro quo with her relationship with the Clintons, perhaps? Yeah, well, that can't be denied. Um, she had, I mean, if you look, there are pictures from them in 1993 with the Clintons, Epstein and Ghislaine. So they've had that deep relationship for years. But here's what's strange about it all. Um, we have that sort of blackmail aspect. We have the grooming aspect. We have the Orgy Island aspects and the underage human trafficking. And that will keep us going in a number of circles. And it does work, you know, for the types of things that they were doing, with blackmail, you know, pimping and all the rest. But there's something much deeper with these people. And this is the odd thing. If you go back and look at Epstein, the person who gave him his big break at this private school was Barr's, William Barr's father. And if you go even a little bit into Barr's father, you find he's a science fiction fanatic who's, you know, really into like the Blade Runner uh, type material. And he writes his own book about these eugenicists going into space and founding a planet. So this, there's an extra factor always circulating around these people, just like Epstein. If he was just into wild sex and blackmailing people, why is he funding eugenics? You know, this is showing that. And, and according to part of those uh, reports that came out about what he was doing over there at Harvard, um, you know, he was saying to those people, I want to have these girls there. I want to impregnate 99 of them and see the different features that come out. But I don't want to actually participate in doing it. Who wants to do it like a test tube? <laughs> so uh, that whole thing is suggesting that these people fundamentally believe in this uh, Belial bloodline. They think that they're coming from this Atlantis AI and that, you know, this is what they're conjuring. I think that's why you see Hawking and people like that going out in these submarines with them. But whatever it is they found has to be important 
because if you have Hawking and people like that involved, they're not just going down there for the heck of it. And he's not going down for the floor show <laughs> because, you know, at that level of handicap, you know, it's not, he's not somebody that you can blackmail with, with sex pictures. So something else is going on there. Speaking of babies then, what about the attempt to get Virginia to carry Epstein's baby? What, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's very strange. Um, they have a thing with her about ingratiating her and having almost like Ghislaine be her mother. Um, I would say that in her filings and in her court case, it's a runaway, um, you know, open source secret that the Minsky piece and the Cousteau piece, if you can put those together, you can find out, you can really get close to what they're up to. Because... Um, Alexandra Cousteau is basically somebody who her only major connection is this fact that Cousteau did the Quest for Atlantis series. There's no reason to blackmail her. And so she doesn't add up with like a Minsky. She doesn't add up with like, you know, a Clinton or something like that. So where does she fit in? Well, uh, if you go a little bit further back into Ghislaine's background, you're going to find that Terramar is the nonprofit that she founded. And that was all about becoming a citizen of the ocean. Well, in the middle of that whole piece about mystery schools, um, they, there's a prediction inside the mystery schools about land rising. And a lot of people, when I did the investigations on this, it's really interesting because people from John Lennon to Ernest Hemingway were very obsessed with land rising. And again, the areas there in the hot zone. So I think we're looking at something uh, with that, that there's some secret among this group that when land rises and it's in open territory, it's in international waters, it can be claimed as a nation, and that somehow this has a mystical significance. If you go back, this is a thing that even goes back to Francis Bacon with New Atlantis and all the rest of it. When we get the American Revolution, they do it on the same day that he released New Atlantis. So there's something in those circles that's old that relates directly to an antediluvian uh, culture, and this is the Atlantis peace that's involved with the cult aspects of what they're doing beyond the illegal um you know that whole thing that that they were involved with which is very salacious um you know but if you look at it her dad also had that kind of background have you looked at maxwell's sisters the mysterious death of the illusionist and their involvement in software and security contracts and stuff like that yeah, it is very strange. And the sisters um, are very involved with the early version of Promise Software. And um, Promise Software, you know, really is the linchpin for all the things that have happened since the 1980s on the deep state side. And the idea uh, really being that they were able to uh, lure people and countries into using the software and they, the software had a back door in it where we could monitor even what were supposed to be allies like Israel. Uh, we were monitoring them. We were monitoring France um, and other countries like Russia who were supposed to be opposed to us. We set out little things so that they could steal it. So they didn't think, oh, we're just giving it to them and they're spying on them. They stole the software and we had a back door in it. So um, the involvement of the Maxwell sisters in that and in setting up the early um you know, the early version of like Netscape Navigator, basically. It's very interesting because Promise Software comes to us out of the UFO file. 
believe it or not, that whole story of Reconosciuto and how the back door was built into it. If you look into Michael Reconosciuto, uh, who was really a class A hacker in, of his day and uh, only in the last five years got out of prison, he was associated with this case because when the software was altered, it was the Justice Department that asked him to do it. And later he came forward as a whistleblower and they put him away for running a meth lab, um, which was probably, you know, an easy way to, to uh, set him up. But if you go into his past a little bit, you're going to find that his father was uh, partners with someone named Fred Christman. And Christman is involved in the very fundamental early uh, UFO case, which is the Maury Island case. He's the person who co-owns uh, the boat where the Maury Island case happens. And Chrisman is going to have a very dodgy, strange career through Boeing. Uh, and some people have referred to him as the Boeing assassin. Um, but this guy is, goes throughout UFO conferences and he's involved with the early UFO file activity. So that's a direct connection from Reconosciuto's dad to the UFO file. Wow. So what are these people really involved in? We're just scratching our heads, mesmerized by what you're saying and wondering. It just keeps expanding, doesn't it, what they were involved in? <laughs> it seems like it's never ending. Well, the UFO file is a big secret in mystery, uh, secret society circles, and they understand a great deal about it. What they did actually uh, in the government is they adopted some of the secret symbolism that the mystery schools had and they used X for everything. Uh, if you go into that and how they set up the X file, that's all based on advanced uh, UFO technology that they were redeveloping. But the X steganography and the way that it was done had been done for centuries through those secret groups. They used the X as the, the symbol. So in order to move advanced technology projects through government offices, they needed something, a way to say, hey, steganography, this is the project you need to watch. So they just called them X, and that's how they developed. You know, that's why we call it the X steganography shows. They move the projects through the various uh, government agencies by using X steganography. It's pretty interesting. You're going to find there's no way to get around. Uh, there's there's a mystical aspect involved in the deep state takeover piece, and some people are just great at the deep state piece, and I appreciate their work. But they don't want anything to do with the UFO file <laughs> or mystery schools. So we're missing all that expertise on the UFO side. And the UFO side gets into trouble because the CIA moves in there and they're like, hey, you know, $50 million through TTSA. And you have a bunch of broke researchers and they think, oh, this is great. But it's the Central Intelligence Agency running it, you know. <laughs> so it's a really big problem. Uh, I think that when you're looking at getting to the truth on the UFO file matter, uh, you know, you have to take these things into account. You have to kind of work in the deep state uh, knowledge and the idea of, you know, assassinations and things of that nature. So we've got about five minutes left. We're going to segue over to Kevin Annette, who, who gets into the Catholic Church, uh, the pedophile ring, the atrocities with the Native American kids. Do you know anything about the Order of the Nine Angles? That was the question that was put to us on YouTube. It's very interesting. Um, you know, it's interesting. Is he going to talk about that tonight? That's his expertise, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. I'm going to be watching uh, more on that tonight. I can't wait to hear what he has to say about it. Okay, do you, what's your thoughts on that stuff? 
Um, I think that a number of these groups and their connections can be understood a little bit better if we open up, you know, the, I think the problem is just like with the Epstein case, we get stuck in the sexual allegations and then Epstein getting bumped off. So we're stuck in like a political sex scandal. And if you go even one inch deep, you're going to find this other stuff. And so the only way I think we're going to get that open uh, door to some of this, whether it's cult activity or secret society activity, is by looking at it and bringing in some of the mystery school angle and understanding that history and association. Because if you understand these people who are running CERN, for example, and the secrecy around CERN, and I don't want to make it a boogeyman, you know, but it is unusual. Um, but those people, there's a reason, you know, they think that they can communicate with higher beings in these other realms and they're they're hoping to conjure up an etheric being you know uh what happened was that yeah. that was the joke when cern it was like well alternate dimension what are you trying to do contact somebody in an alternate dimension and they were like oh no it's a scientific project for the internet and then at the end they're like well yeah we're trying to open up something with alternate dimensions well <laughs> i mean now now they're saying what the was a conspiracy 10 years ago so uh, there is something unusual about this period in time. It's almost like the secrecy facade is falling and, you know, they're standing there and being like, you know, yeah, UFOs are aliens, you know, <laughs> and it's this weirdness like, well, you've hidden this for 75 years and now you're just saying that you just discovered this. What have you been doing with that material, by the way, on the taxpayer's dime for eight decades, you know? That's when you get into things uh, like the secret space program and the UFO file and understand it as a driving factor in things that we do. You know, a lot of people who get into the UFO thing, they're like, are there aliens walking around and that whole thing? You know, that's not what I think it's about. I think the, the idea is somehow they've tripped into an, a really exotic technology and that technology they've kept to themselves. And this is the nature of the kind of schizophrenic situation because suddenly out of the blue you have one group over there in the world economic forum and those types like the klaus schwab type saying hey we're going to you know, microchip everybody and everyone's going to be a cyborg and you know it's transhumanist future and all this stuff where's all this coming from none of those people are elected you know uh where's the conversation in the public about any of this stuff it's like this weird um schizophrenic situation that's developed it's like a cycle of disrespect basically that's developed between the populace and these people who have this deep uh, knowledge based on the research of the exotic technology, wherever it came from. Two minutes left. What's your thoughts on the Vatican harboring information on UFOs? Well, uh, this is really interesting because, of course, they have for a number of years. And one of the things they've done with their telescopes, etc., is uh you know they've primed them to see these types of things and they came out with suggestions that hey you know we welcome aliens we'd baptize them and all that stuff but there was a particular incident happened last fall and you might have remembered this when president biden went over and visited the pope and he starts talking all about satchel page who was a baseball player in what they call the united negro league here for baseball in the 1940s and here's you know, Biden walking around talking about it. He's like, oh, that Negro baseball league. You know, I mean, people don't even use the phraseology, right? Here we go. He's going off about Satchel Page when he talks to the Pope. 
So if you do some real digging on this, you're going to find the main expedition uh, in the last 20 years to Mars renamed uh, certain aspects of the Mars surface with all uh, Negro Baseball League members. So Satchel Page, that whole communication is him talking with the Pope about the next thing they're going to talk about, which is, what if we say there's life on Mars? You're going to be okay with that? <laughs> uh, so certainly the Vatican's very, very deep on this and uh, teetering, I would say, with the Vatican Bank just hanging on and hanging out from scandal. Um, but they've been involved in, in a way that, you know, a religious organization should never be involved um, as far as secrecy and uh, obfuscation are concerned. The Vatican Library holds some incredible things relating not only to uh, UFOs, but also Atlantis. Wow, absolutely mind-blowing. Can't thank you enough, Dark Journalist. Please let the viewers know again where they can find you, support you, follow you. Fantastic. It's great to be here. I enjoy your show a lot. Uh, Cheers. Yeah, I'm at darkjournalist.com, and uh, you can also, that's where you're going to find information and sign up for our free newsletter. Uh, to keep in touch and to find out about shows and interviews and documentaries and events that we have coming up. If you want to watch the X-Series live, that's Friday nights at 8 p.m. on YouTube. Just look for Dark Journalist X-Series, and uh, we'll see you there. Huge thank you for spending time with us. Have a great rest of your day. Cheers, mate.